0: Welcome back to Ideas Into Action. This is episode 26 with another Hamza Khan. This Hamza Khan is a democratic strategist and political activist based in the Washington Metro region's Maryland suburbs. He is also a frequent guest on national and international news stations to provide analysis and commentary on topics ranging from the environment to immigration and developing markets he's also a fellow keynote speaker who has spoken at dozens of social and political events across the united states hums is the founder of the pluralism project an organization working to empower everyday americans hailing from diverse narratives in their political process he has previously consulted members of congress and the u.s senate on outreach strategies to immigrant populations and minority voters, as well as worked as a field operative, campaign manager and communications consultant to national political organizations and for candidates at the local, state and federal levels. Hamza also has a background in speech writing with clients including ambassadors, political candidates, religious leaders and Fortune 500 executives. This was a conversation years in the making and we go right into the story of how it is that we met. It's a It's a, it's a rather funny story, Uh, In hindsight, it was uh, troubling at first, but I'll I'll let you listen to it. Anyways, in this conversation, as with most Ideas into Action podcasts, we cover a lot of territory. I mean, we talked about Miss Marvel, social justice, uh, South Asian identities, burnout, infiltrating Fox News, believe it or not, and ultimately ended on a very poignant note about creating empathy and understanding one breakfast at a time. Without further ado, let's dive right in and listen to two Hamzas speaking and meeting. Hopefully you find this as fascinating and as inspiring as I did. It is not every day that I get to speak with another Hamza Khan. My man, welcome to Ideas Into Action.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course, of course, and a belated Eid Mubarak to you. It's been a couple of days since uh, Eid al-Adha.
1: Well, I think technically it's still Eid al-Adha. It goes on for four days, and that it does. We started the holiday. Yeah, we started the holiday here in DC on Saturday. Uh, so, so I guess you're you're not late in the Mubarak at all. <laughs> Eid Mubarak right back to you.
0: Thank you, man. I had a bit of a surreal experience walking out of the house. So I went to go pray with my dad at our equivalent of Times Square in New York City Hall and uh, Nathan Phillips okay. Square to be exact. And as I was walking out the door, my wife, uh, a white lady, a gory, uh, she said to me, be careful. <laughs> and I said, why? And she said, without flinching, because of white supremacists. And I thought to myself, wow, what a time to be alive. How in just uh, less than two decades how the narrative has completely shifted. And I immediately thought about you. And I was so excited to have this conversation with you because we've been orbiting each other for approximately, I think, three or four years. And we had a really funny introduction to each other. It happened over Twitter. So we both share the same name. You are Hamza Khan. I'm Hamza Khan. I've been very eager to meet another Hamza Khan and have this conversation. In fact, <laughs> I was going to suggest that we bring on another Hamza Khan, my personal trainer, into this convo, but that would be way too much. That would be very indulgent. This is already pretty indulgent, but we'll save that for a, a future episode. But it was really interesting how it is that we met. One morning I woke up to at least 40 to 50 notifications on Twitter, and I'm like, what happened? Am I, am I getting canceled? is this the day? (laughs) And I open up Twitter, and I am at the receiving end of vitriol from conservative Americans. What the hell happened? Sir, I would love to hear from your perspective how I got caught up in in this maelstrom of, uh, of, of, of all kinds of unsavory comments directed at a Hamza Khan.
1: Well, let me let me just start with this. I know quite a few Hamza Khans myself, and I was wondering if we should have like our own Facebook support group. Uh, clearly, this is—it's not easy to be named Hamza Khan. Let, if, for those who don't know, our first name is Arabic; it's old Arabic and means either lion or lion-hearted, and our last name mm-hmm. Khan is uh, Mongol-Turkic and means uh, chieftain or king or, or king.
0: king so, Lion King, yeah, baby. Oh,
1: exactly. So, really, all of us have the same experience. Lion King
0: be your favorite
1: movie, but since we're yep. around, we also want Aladdin and Jasmine, and it all kind of gets it gets kind of mingled together that way. So, so going forward with this, you know, this need for support group. The night before I go on TV, uh, and this is how this all starts. I, I think I made a prayer saying, "Lord, I'd love to meet more Hamza Khans, because at a time I only knew two. And then I go on Fox News in the morning, and as I recall, I think it was up against one of President Trump's spokespeople. Uh, I think it was Katrina Pearson. I could be wrong on that. Maybe it was Sheila Loudon. And, you know, Fox News is owned by um, an Australian news magnate and his family, and they have they tend to have very sensationalist news coverage, uh, if we can still call it that. It's more editorialism than the national news.
0: mm mm-hmm. And
1: they needed a token brown guy to have fun with who was a Democrat. And I happened to be – I fit all the boxes just fine. So I'm up there, and we have a bit of a ditty. And uh, I go—I get off the air. I think it was maybe 5 or 6 in the morning. I think I had a prayer rug with me because I usually keep one on, on 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 me during Ramadan in particular. I'm not the world's greatest Muslim, but during Ramadan, you know, it's a training ground for Islam. I try my best not to screw up that one. Cause Lord knows, <laughs> working in politics, I need some some help from the <laughs> divine. Um, and so yeah, I, I, I guess well, you know, I'm a little sne- I'm a little sleepy. I take a short nap before the workday begins, and then I get the uh, and then I think later that day, you shot me like, a, a DM on Twitter saying, "Hey man, um, I think we're people are confusing you and me."
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and that is that was the original entry uh, introduction between the two of us. And The best part is that this doesn't happen once, right? Hamza, it doesn't happen no. twice, it happens like four or five more times
0: to the it's point frequent. that you eventually asked,
1: Yeah, you asked me what is going on. Like, what can, I don't, I'm not watching your clips. Can you fill me in on what's going on? So I just sent
0: you my TV reel, and uh, I think you showed that to your college class. I did, I did, <laughs> you, yeah, I, they got a great laugh out of that. I'm like, Here's a version. Of this character, and I'm a version of, of the same character, we're both playing this video game of life as the Hamza Khan avatar, but your right. bravery stats are are maxed out. You're jumping into the belly of the beast, the lion's den, if you will. What is it like to be on Fox in in the eye of the storm, not just once, but multiple times? What is that experience so I, like for you?
1: I think this was 2018, and I was on Fox probably more more than 30 or 40 times. I was Holy on there smokes. almost every week of the year. Yeah, sometimes several times a week, at the the, the craziest hours. Um, I guess. But let me just start with you say the lions, end, dude. We're named Lion King. This is where we belong to <laughs> hey. begin with. This yeah. isn't hard for us. I mean, come on. We, we're, we're we're both individuals who spend time around media and communications and having these right. conversations in different spaces. You're more in the business space. Me more in the political world. Uh, you in the genteel. Uh, very friendly, polite Canadian space, me <laughs> in the much more rough and tumble, neocon, uh, dystopian American space. Oh, and, and what I can say is that it wasn't that bad. Um, I think the worst experience, since we're on the topic of Eid and, and our names and, and our background, the worst experience I had at Fox was that one morning I came in and it was Ramadan, and mm-hmm. the person I was going to be debating against was up there as well. Uh, and we were sitting next to each other in the green room and chatting, and she noticed uh, a pair of rubs sticking out of my my briefcase, uh, and she had uh, or my laptop bag, I suppose. And she had a couple of questions about it, and I told her, and we had a really polite chat about it. And I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. Okay, I, I was. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that she was respectful. Let me go on air, and uh, <laughs> she she tried to bring up the fact that I'm Muslim on air, which was a no-no. Everybody at Fox understood mm-hmm. I, I wasn't there to be the Muslim guy. My name was implicit of who I am. We, we're not trying to, like, sensationalize religion. Uh, we leave that for, for identity politicians, of sure. which I am not. And so there was an audible gasp in my earpiece, and that was one of the producers. They were shocked that someone would try and, like, make my religion the focal point in a way wow. by saying, well, I'm not sure your guests will agree with me. Your other guests will agree with me. But I, as the chief on right now, believe this country is founded upon Judeo-Christian beliefs. And yeah. I was, you know, trying to get a rise that did not work well for her. I didn't take the bait, uh, nice. and we just went on with it. And it came off the air. Everyone from uh, the in-studio producer to the uh, the uh, the, anest- uh, the estheticians who were working, you know, the makeup folks to the security guard, each one by one apologized to me. Uh, and said so we,
0: wow. we had no idea that
1: was going to happen. We're not comfortable with that. Uh, because, you know, they have folks on there who that's what they're there for. Their shtick is right. to fight about Islam and crusades and all this other stuff sure. that I really care about. Um, I'm not that guy. I, I generally cover domestic politics. If you bring me into IR, boy, am I more hawkish than most <laughs> Democrats. Um, by virtue of how I grew up here in the in D.C. region, and so that was probably the worst experience I had. It was very, it was a lot of fun. It was fun in the sense that I got to share my point of view, not lose my temper for the most part, with a group of Americans who otherwise would never hear it. And more often than not, I mean, I think I was a punch, I was punching well above my weight, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I was very blessed in that. I, I learned a lot about debating. I learned a heck of a lot about media. Uh, I think that when we say it's the eye of the storm, It's misleading. It's a, mm-hmm. it's it's really a storm in a teacup. Mm. Uh, most of this sensationalism has been designed by forces abroad, outside my country, uh, right. with who have an interest in seeing drama, who, right. who make money by seeing drama. And this is where we have to ask questions about whether free market is all it's cracked up to be, whether or not we should have deregulated um, or unregulated our you know, it was, it's deregulated. Deregulated our entire media scene back in the early '90s. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of questions to be asked about that, and I think the answer to a lot of them is that you know you need government involvement just enough to keep the game fair. Because yes, really. right now the game is very fixed in terms of Absolutely. media coverage and what stories get get coverage and whatnot. So, you oh know, my that, god, that, that's how that's how it came together for me. So.
0: We can go in so many different directions with this. I'm really excited. And, and what a beautiful anecdote that was about your behind-the-scenes experience at Fox. I wish I could ring up all of the classmates or my students at the time with with whom I shared the, the story of being mistaken for you, Hamza. And um, it was really interesting because you and your experiences with Fox became a sort of keyhole issue by which we were looking at filter bubbles and echo chambers in the social media landscape and discussing the zeitgeist. My goodness, how much the world has changed since then. That was three or four years ago. We've gone through a global pandemic since then, or they're calling it a triple black swan event, a pandemic, a recession, and a war, just to name a handful of things that have shaped the experience of modern life. I'd love to actually take it back a couple of steps with you, Hamza, and and go back to A blog post that you sent me in, I think it was November of 2020. And I think it was titled something like, where I've been for the last little while, where I've been for the last few years. In in that post, you talked about running for office and what that experience was like for you. It's been some time since then. It's been nearly two and a half years. Have your thoughts on running for office changed? And my follow-up question to that is, where is all of the efforts that Hamza Khan is generating right now? What what is it that you're attempting to do with all of your different pieces in your portfolio of work, with the pluralism project, with running for office, with being a a, a representative of multiple communities? I'd love to just get a as abstract or as as precise as you want to get. What are you trying to do with your time, energy, and attention here? Well, oh, well, thank you.
1: That's a that's a compound question, and I'll do my best to answer it in non-Fox News style um, <laughs> with, with with as many facts as I can get in. Uh, so that blog post, I mean, one thing is that I, you know, as, as Hamza can attest, by going through my blog, um, I don't blog very often. Uh, I do it periodically, maybe every quarter or so. Um, and the reason for that is that I have a very tumultuous personal life, and I'm, I'm fine sharing it on, on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother is autistic, and uh, my sister has Down syndrome. During the pandemic, I had to uh, move back in with my folks, my family, because the caretaker for my uh, brother and sister, who was my uncle, um, died from mm-hmm. yeah, the pandemic so in the that. first few uh, mm-hmm. first few weeks of the pandemic. I actually mm-hmm. have to visit in Toronto for a family wedding.
0: Oh, my goodness. And
1: uh, that definitely changed the direction of my life. In a lot of ways uh my brother and sister and i have always been close uh we've always seen each other numerous times a week no matter what circumstance be it college or a hectic work life or campaigning for a candidate for president across the country i've always made time for them as a matter of of moral obligation and also because they're they're my ride or die as we say right
0: yeah Uh, they're there for me in
1: every circumstance they didn't get to choose a political brother or a politician for a brother but uh, I'm boy, am I lucky that they, they want me around regardless. And so that, that was one of my vulnerable moments writing that blog post. Um, I had run for office in 2018, so four years ago, and I had not realized, despite living in one of the wealthiest and most educated parts of the world, as I, as I am told, as, as it is marketed to me, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, where I'm from, has more PhDs per capita and attorneys per capita, um, uh, than any other place in the world except for Tel Aviv, Israel, and New York, New York.
0: Wow. And so That's we wild. are
1: very, yeah, we are very well educated. We have about 100,000 Muslims out of 1.1 million people living here, a uh, sizable Jewish population from every country in the world as well. Uh, we are home to over, uh, 180 nationalities. Amazing. of whom the vast majority have become U.S. citizens. So this is is the place, when we talk about pluralism and diversity, when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, Montgomery County should be the model. But our elected officials look nothing like this very educated Mm. group of immigrants and people of color. Uh, And in fact, they look very much the opposite. Uh, They are overwhelmingly Democrats. We haven't elected a Republican in this part of of the country uh, since I was, I think, 16 years old. Which was 18 years ago, and this political class is ossifying. The uh, they're mostly in mm-hmm. their 70s. Uh, it's the same situation as when AOC went up against PJ Crowley up in New York, or when Jamal Bowman went, out, went, went off on a limb and took out Elliot Engel in New York as well. Uh, it's, it's an older political class uh, that considers the only way to have coffee is to have more milk than coffee, which I consider <laughs> to be internalized racism. Your coffee should be black, folks. No cream, no sugar. I'm very, very committed to that cause. Making
0: macchiatos here. (laughs) Shame on you.
1: Uh, uh, But, you know, staying on point for a sec, like I didn't realize that there would be so much racism and discrimination towards a, a Muslim American candidate simply because I'm Muslim. Not by the electorate. The electorate had few problems with me, but the political class was very committed to keeping uh, Muslims are getting elected in our region, and Asian Americans in general, across the continent of Asia, not just South Asians or, or Middle Easterners, particularly anyone from Asia. Uh, and that that stuck with me, uh, and that, that did cost me the election because, you know, without political institutional support, when you have a region or a district that's 75% Democrat, 67% Democrat, or Republican, you really do need that. That corporate political force to help you through. And without that backing, I found it very hard to run my first time, uh, mm-hmm. so I lost. Uh, mm-hmm. And there were, you know, we're talking about anything from paying an activist living somewhere else in the state, well outside of my county uh, and rat- and writing, as you would say, in Canada, um, to attack me on Facebook and claim that I'm a Sharia agent. Hamza, I'm president of a Jewish fraternity for two years.
0: I'm saying when I was
1: in college. I, I'm probably the least likely guy to be qualified as a Sharia <laughs> agent. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just not me.
0: No. Uh,
1: but, you know, the political establishment really didn't like the idea of a Muslim running it. Uh, and, that, and that definitely um, that definitely hurt. And so following that, I uh, got involved in a lot of very interesting things. I decided to take time off from politics. I had a little bit of savings. Uh, And I decided that I wanted to travel the world. I got an opportunity at Georgetown to do a summer graduate program and study democratic consolidation in Tunisia and Turkey, which I thought, you know, it's very important. Democracy is very, very important to me for a lot of very personal reasons. And then I got to write a very interesting academic paper about the constitutional crisis in Kashmir and uh, democratic consolidation issues in Pakistan, where my family is originally from. And that's why democracy matters to me. My grandfather was imprisoned three times by three different military junta's uh, because he insisted, as a lawyer, as a constitutional lawyer, my dad, that Pakistan should be a full-fledged democracy and the power should belong to the people. That was not something the military took kindly to. I'm afraid, uh, and so that marred his life and it affected his children, ergo my mother and her sibling's lives. And so. Um, that, that's why democracy is so so precious to me, because I've seen what happens when government has overriding authority to do harm to everyday people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, you know, what you asked what I want to do with all of this. You know, I, I didn't really have a plan in 2009 when the recession hit. All I knew is that I had to find a job. Uh, and I, I was a political science major, a studies minor, a in Asian studies. I, I cared about the world. I knew that I wanted—I wanted to be a diplomat at the time, but I found myself, uh, you know, staunchly opposed to American efforts abroad at the time, particularly in Iraq, uh, and that so that that opportunity in my mind was foreclosed to me. And I decided that activism and impacting democracy on the ground is where I wanted to set, uh, you know to start from the ground up. It wasn't supposed to be a career move. It was like, well, I'll do like you know, I'll do an election or two. And then I'll probably go to law school. The ramifications of the the global recession caused by the American financial crisis in 2007 to 2008 meant that that was not really an opportunity afforded to me and many of my peers. The number of classmates from high school I knew who lost their homes or families lost their homes, I think it was as high as one in four. And again, oh one of the goodness. wealthiest and most educated parts of the country. Yeah. Right. Uh, the collapse of government services uh, was tremendous and the collapse of the economy. I mean, we're known for our ability in America because of like some sort of pseudo laissez-faire policies here to be a country of opportunity where you're, you can have a robust economic uh, uh, system. That wasn't the case for the past decade in my country. And I think it was quite the opposite. And that, that really drew, uh, stuck with me. And so I fell into politics more out of a sense of beauty than anything else so what do i want to do with it well right now um what i want to do with it is i want to be as productive as i can to help the american people and particularly the people here in my home state of maryland uh, what that looks like next is kind of as we say an inshallah thing uh, and have to and figure out where we go from here
0: wow that is uh that is beautiful man you First, first of all, I just want to want to say, as as uh, as a fellow South Asian fellow Muslim, fellow American, and fellow Hamza, thank you for extending the runway of what's possible, not just for another version of you, but also you know our your your brother, your sister, my sister, my brother, and the generations that will come after us. You know you use the word lost the election. And I, yeah, you might have, by virtue of the zero sum game that it is, might have lost that election, but I think you've won something perhaps even cosmic here, which is a visualization of someone like us entering that arena. Because I imagine we're the same age-ish. I might be a little bit older than you. I'm 87. I'm guessing you are. I'm 87. Oh, you're 87. Look at that. So we've been moving through the world in lockstep. August. Okay. Oh, your birthday's coming
1: up. I'm November. So you're going to turn 35- Slightly before me, you're going to be my berserk for a couple of months. That's I was going to say elder.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You're you trust listener, me. Yeah. What did you say? For for those three months, I'm technically yeah. Uncle Hamza to you, right? Um yes, or Hamza right. uncle. Hamza mama, mamu. Um, but but I I think that we've been brushing upon the same structure, the invisible structure for. Our entire lives—the the political structure, the economic structure, the social structure—and we've been approaching it, as you mentioned at the start of this conversation, in different ways. i more so through business, through commerce, and you know, my world of marketing, communications—and you've been doing so in your own way as well. But I love that you've actually gone into it; like you didn't just touch it—you actually attempted to to, to 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 permeate that that membrane, if you will, that has been eluding our community for so long. Wow, man! I. I'm, I'm I'm truly at a loss here, especially reflecting on the the recent episode that I saw of Miss Marvel. Are you all caught up, by the way? I oh, have not God.
1: had a chance to watch it yet, man. Don't at all. don't do any spoilers. No, oh, I'm still right shit. in Maryland.
0: So so
1: Maryland ha- we're a, a wonderful state with a lot of very corrupt leaders. I'm afraid to say yeah, our yeah. our Supreme Court, our our Court of Appeals, or as we call it here, uh, intervened with our elections. Uh, and move the election date several times over so that instead of having an election back in like mid-June, I have an election, a primary election in July 19, And Thanks I have to had. be a campaign manager and a political director at a national political organization. And so my life has been consumed with the Maryland election.
0: Fair enough. No, are, that makes at, sense. For, for, yeah. So as soon
1: as that's over on the 19th, like my plan is that weekend to just binge watch Miss Marvel because I'm hearing nothing okay. but raves about it.
0: So Because I, yeah. I assume that you watched it. You dropped that meme on your Instagram with Eid Mubarak, and I responded being like, we yeah. have to talk about this. <laughs> oh, so man. I, I'm, we're going to have to do this episode again. This will be an ongoing thing, I promise you, but we need to debrief this. I need to hear from your perspective what the show will do for you, hopefully.
1: I mean, I can tell you from the onset because it's on my list of things to blog about, and maybe submit a story somewhere about um, a, a you know a person, a personal story. Uh, that what Miss Marvel has done it has it, overnight in America, um, partially because the last occupant of the White House, whether legally elected or not, uh, which is a debate that for another day, mm-hmm. um, that that president did a lot. To make Muslim Americans go from being America's least favorite redheaded stepchild to America's favorite um, adopted child. And, Mm. you know, it's it's so important for me to to hit on this. Sometimes it takes exorbitant privilege being used or misused in just the right way to flip what's happening in any given market. That market Uh. could be the marketplace of ideas. It could be the marketplace of business and commerce. Um, but that's, that's definitely what happened here. Miss Marvel would not come, have come about, uh, if it hadn't been for Donald Trump being in the White House. Right. And being such Adding a good for. Adding some downward support. pressure. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Exactly. Oh my God. Exactly. Goodness. Because well, that, that defines to a lot of American consumers who they were not. Right. Right. Sometimes there's a whole adage about, you know, uh, a car designed by committee. Back in the, I think the 70s, Ford commissioned a bunch of people to come up with ideas for a car. And once they employed all of the different uh, design suggestions and, and little uh, quirks and things that they wanted in the car, people hated the car that came out of it. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of where America was. We, we were kind of stuck in Haleem mode. We didn't know what we wanted. Just <laughs> throw everything in the pot and see what happens. Right? So halim is a South Asian spicy uh, stew, guy.
0: Don't kill listening me. Right now.
1: Haleem mode. <laughs> and... It can either taste really good or yeah. it can taste horrible. Horrible. It's so,
0: so easy to get it wrong. Yeah. Trump,
1: Trump defined for all of us how much salt we want in our halim. And clearly yeah. it's not that much white stuff that we want in our halim. So right, we got to thank you for Miss Marble. So I will okay. follow up with you about that, though.
0: I'm, I'm excited for you to check it out. I've got some more recommendations for you. If you haven't seen uh, this movie – by Riz Ahmed called Mogul Mowgli. That's another one that I would highly recommend you check out. It's really hard. Okay. I mean, I imagine we grew up on the same cultural inputs. Did you watch Bollywood movies growing up? Do I have to answer Ish. that for the
1: record?
0: You don't have to, <laughs> yeah. but if you have to, then you also have to add in your favorite all-time uh, uh, Bollywood film as well. You can throw that in there.
1: Uh, I love Lumpet <laughs> from 1991. Rambi from 1991 is my favorite. So good. Because it had a a great uh, desert scene and a traditional desert song sung in the Tar Desert of Rajasthan, which is in India today. And that that really caught me. I was like, that's great. I wasn't into all the overly synth uh, techno kind of style Indian pop music, but he gave me something truly culturally relevant, truly something from the heart of Indian and South Asian culture. I love it because I, I, I want authenticity. I love fusion. But if it's poorly done fusion, you have a bad Haleem. And we don't need more bad Haleem.
0: So. And on that note, sir, I mean let's 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 riff on the Haleem motif or the metaphor for, for a moment here. You know, growing up I always felt uh, sort of the effects of partition reflected in in the media that I consumed. If I wanted a quote unquote authentic Indian cultural experience, it usually came in the form of Bollywood movies and what I was experiencing on this side of the pond here in North America were just caricatures. Of course, the problem with Apu, and then all of our depictions in movies as terrorists, especially when you think about in G.I. Joe or Johnny Quest, you know, just this babbling yeah. Haji character. And, you know, then came Slumdog Millionaire, which was like, oh, okay, I see what you're trying to do here. The intentions are good, but, you know, why is I, Nicole Scherzinger from The Pussycat J-Hope. Dolls singing j Ho," <laughs> And this guy's accent is off. Like, what's happening over here? And then... Along comes Miss Marvel here in 2022, and I'm turning to Bailey, my wife, being like, ah, I need you to watch this to tell me if this resonates with you, because this is probably the most authentic depiction of that tension, that culture clash. I mean, I'm not going to spoil anything here, but there is a sequence that I don't think has ever been committed to film about, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it. You know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to afford you the pleasure of watching it, spoiler free, but I think you'll text me when you see this scene. You'll be like, "Wow, I don't think I've ever seen this in a Bollywood film, uh, um, in in Hollywood." I mean, it's it was it was a totally novel experience, and it brought me to tears. So did Mogul Mowgli, and I've been my head's been spinning. I've people have asked me how I'm doing these days, and I tell them I'm overwhelmed. I truly am. I feel like I'm going through. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, Hamza. It's. Uh, I've never felt more connected to my ancestry than at this particular moment in time. So again, come, this is really all about you. And I want to come back to what your future about plans me, are About we're now. the same
1: person. I thought we used to have a new universe, right? So,
0: <laughs> I, I, I want to know what it's like to play the game as you though, because what what's next for you? What, what, what are you going to do now? So you're back home, you're, you're, you're taking care of you know the, the fam. Um, you've taken some time, you've written those papers, you've traveled, you've got this election coming up. What's next for you as Hamza Khan?
1: So right now, I, I you know, you, you caught me on the perfect day too because tomorrow we have a lot of major announcements coming up. Today is Monday, July 11th, and I'm mean, going to get the podcast is going to run well after tomorrow, um, or probably, probably on Friday. Not, not, yeah, that's that's perfect. So I can I can give some spoilers right here. Uh, an, an American treasure named Rabia Chaudhry, who's also Pakistani American worked with me during the pandemic to pass a number of um, badly needed criminal justice reform bills here in Maryland to give you an idea of why Maryland matters so much in this context. Maryland is minority majority. It's the wealthiest minority majority state in the United States. There are three states that are minority majority. It's us, uh, Hawaii, and I can't remember the third one for the life of me right now, in addition to District of Columbia. And that being said, um, our legal system does not look like the people who live here, so we end up having. Uh, I think we are we are number one in the country for uh, imprisoning people of color, any color wow. aside from white, by 20 points ahead of Mississippi. What the next highest state in the union is Mississippi, and number two, and then Maryland, which is right north of. Let's point this out for your for your listeners. Right north of Washington D.C., right oh, Maryland sucks. sits right above Washington D.C. and through hook and crook. Maryland was kept in the Union during the Civil War. So this isn't exactly where you would expect to see this sort of thing going on. And then miscarriages of justice are, are, are par for the course of Maryland. I mean, just go on an HBO. We own this city, The Wire. Those are all true stories pulled together in different yep. ways by Justin Fenton, uh, formerly of the Baltimore Sun, now of the Baltimore uh, Banner. And, and it tells you so much about what in the world is going on here. So, uh, Rabia and I worked together on a number of these bills um, in Annapolis. Got them passed with a lot of help from people like Lajat Ali, who you might know from CNN, Alyssa Milano, and and Kim Kardashian, actually. And okay. together we decided that you know this story doesn't end here. Um, with with her with her blessing from from afar, we've pulled together a national hybrid pack called um, Just Reform Pact, which is okay. going to be focusing on electing reformists. Prosecutors and judges across the country, because the United States has a criminal justice problem. It has a civil justice problem too. About seventy-five percent of all cases in the U.S. state courts um, focus in, on the civil at the civil level on debt collection processes, mostly mm-hmm. around medical debt. Uh, so, wow. and we've seen that for over a decade. And uh, particularly in my state, Maryland, has the number three highest number of foreclosures in the country for the past decade and a half. So. Fixing our courts and recognizing that a lot of what we're seeing in our country uh, is a product of uh, gross abuse of power, mainly by <clears throat> boomers over the past <laughs> decade, uh, is very important. That's on the top of my mind. So I'm, I'm stepping in as political director to help with that effort. Uh, and we have a lot of exciting announcements, a lot of exciting endorsements. We are directly being involved in elections, doing in expenditures across the country. And we're people-powered. We're very much focused on only one thing are you going to reform our, our broken system or not? And the, stand, right. the metric for reform is, is pretty universal in terms of transparency, in terms of um, diversity and equity, and access to government, access to judicial processes. Um, are you committed to due process? Are you committed to a, an ethical standard of, of uh, evidence collection and discovery? Those are things that I think everyone can get behind. We're not talking about penalizing the police. We're not talking about making it harder to throw criminals behind bars. We want the people who are actually guilty behind bars. We want the actual domestic abuser to be barred Mm -hmm. from having access to his ex-wife and to his children who he wishes to abuse. Um, And for for that individual to also get mental health uh, uh, um, help as much as possible, because as you and I both know as Americans, Mental health is a, a serious public crisis in the U.S. Huge. Uh, yeah. it, that's that's our real pandemic. We've talked about terrorism. Look, we haven't had a foreign terrorist attack our country in almost like well over a decade, I believe. Mm-hmm. Most of the terrorism in our country is by white supremacists, like your wife directly pointed out. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, that, there's something for us to think about around that. So that's where I am now. That's the immediate future. What comes after that, again, like, I want to help the people here in the United States, particularly in Maryland, where I'm from, be the best we can be um, for the reason that despite us saying otherwise, there are very few countries in the world that have the potential to set global tone and tenor the way the United States of America can.
0: Correct. There are some
1: who don't want that to be the case. Uh, and I think that we have a lot to learn from our Canadian friends, a lot to learn, especially on how to be polite with people we disagree with. You guys seem to have mastered that still up there. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there's just so much America offers the world. And I think that it, that potential is being shredded to pieces because we're in, involved in these terrible internal debates that can mm, be resolved gracious. very amicably amongst, yeah, amongst fellow Americans.
0: So. And, and Hamza, I actually want to come back to that point at the end because you wrote something so beautiful in your most recent blog post Um, And I think the title of it, I forget the name, but I remember vividly at the end, you answered uh, or or you you, you gave this image of, um, I wrote down over here, having 10 million breakfasts with people who aren't anything like us. But I do want to come back to that after we go into the specifics of your process. So this is a podcast, first and foremost, about making ideas happen. It's not necessarily a productivity or a peak performance podcast in that sense. I know there's tens of probably thousands of podcasts that attempt to do that very well. This is really about understanding you, your purpose, what you want to do with your time on earth, and offering some advice to people who might be able to apply some strategies that you use for managing your time, your energy, and your attention to their respective projects. So my first question for you is, in the production of this pack and all of this work that you're doing that i can only imagine is just very emotionally draining and taxing and labor intensive is probably early mornings late nights first of all is this something that you do every day for an entire year or is this more like a basketball season where you're intensely working on it for maybe a couple of months so i guess just to rephrase that question is this level of intensity is it uh, daily for you, across the entire year, or is it just spread out over a couple of phases?
1: So let's let's go back to the question about process and how we got mm-hmm. to where we are right now. Before I answer that directly, sure. Which is that you know when you grow up um, with two siblings who are very special, and I'm very blessed to have them, you learn to be forgiving of people's foibles and also to give as much time as needed for process. Because not everyone is at the same point in either communication, cog- cognition, or anything else that you can imagine. And when we talk about intensity, I go, well, I mean, what other people would be considered to be intense for me is now just a walk in the park. Because 34 years mm-hmm. into my life, every day of my life is intense uh, yeah. because of the factors we've gone over. Uh this is not something you put on the sidelines for a couple of weeks um, or a couple of days and disappear. Uh, in terms of the work I'm doing right now, this is an everyday uh, part wow. of my life. This is de- dealing with the stress that comes with it. Is, it's is a very simple thing for me to remind myself that I am human. Yes. And that at the end of the day, there, even, even with all the great movies about him, not even Gandhi liberated India single handedly. You have no. to do what you can yeah you have to do what you can as you do and not allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the moment uh it's as simple as putting together a checklist you might have uh uh, like a hundred a hundred point checklist for a project when you put together a task manager in in a spreadsheet or if you're using a project management software like monday.com or something you might very well look at this entire project in front of you and go Oh, damn. Uh, I just stepped into it. This is monumental. Yeah, Yeah. it's monumental. Um, We all know that. But you do one step at a time, day by day, and keep in mind that you're working towards a greater goal. For instance, after four years of quiet work on this issue, uh, a dangerously Islamophobic candidate was finally today exposed in maryland at a press conference with a lot of press watching uh yeah and they're running for lieutenant governor in maryland with deep ties to very anti-muslim organizations in india and elsewhere in the world and that person had such power in the political process that they couldn't be held accountable until now journalists were scared of them uh elected officials were like yo you know we don't want to touch this we don't even understand most of this stuff uh because it's Dealing with Islamophobia and bigotry is very hard for baby boomers. Whites Uh, they don't always follow. Many of them have a good good intention in their heart, but but as an older group of Americans who grew up in a very different looking society, it's sometimes hard for them to understand the ramifications of one word or one donation or or multiple words and multiple donations from questionable people. So uh, you when when you're dealing with life altering Um, situations like passing laws, public policy, and political elections, if you allow yourself to be overwhelmed in the moment by everything coming at you, you're going to burn out. And that's something I think I wrote about in that blog post too. And that was something in, in, in DMs you and I have talked about, you know, we should have a combo about millennial burnout and how burnout is, one, it's going to happen at some point if you overwork yourself, and two it's up to you whether or not you allow that to be marketed as your decline or demise, or if you allow yourself to rise like a Phoenix afterwards and become Mm. something greater from the experience. And for me in 2018, that was my burnout moment, losing that election, right? So the last four years have been focused on how do I accept both my humanity and the fragility of my, my ego, so to speak. uh, And how do you, how do you build something meaningful from there? So, to answer the question about intensity it's a daily it's a day-to-day thing the intensity doesn't come down the question becomes are you afraid of it or you do you face it just yeah. by looking it straight in the eye you know when you're up there on fox for instance we talked about that and if anyone's confused we're talking like national fox news right All right we're yeah, not yeah. talking a local outlet um you're on fox news you got 10 million people looking at looking at you on tv on, on fox and Friends. Mm-hmm or on, on the Ingram angle, um, both of which have been on, uh, numerous times. And these are, you know, they want you to make a mistake. Uh, yeah. the hope is that you will trip up. You'll say the wrong thing. You'll start ad living and it becomes a viral clip the other way. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you're <clears throat> humiliated after that, uh, sure. people, you know, and people are really mean on social media with that kind of thing.
0: Yeah.
1: So how, how do you deal with that? That pressure. Well, you forget about it. You're not seeing 10 million people. You see yourself on there. You see yourself talking to somebody else. And sometimes you don't even get that. You just look at a camera. And that's it. As we say, in the box, you're sitting in a box by yourself looking at the camera. You can't allow yourself to worry about ramifications that don't exist yet. You can only deal with what's in front of you. And the only way to get through any of that is to be as calm as possible and collect your thoughts. Mm. That's something a lot of millennials have trouble with. Anxiety. Is through the roof in our generation, right? I mean, we know so many young people who go through burnout and go through emotional troubles and, and mental health issues, uh, partially because they haven't trained themselves uh, and nor have they been allowed to seek the medical help they need so they no. can be trained to deal with with stress and anxiety as it comes at you.
0: And you've gone through so much and, and it sounds like you've really built up your resilience muscle over time. Hamza, what are some of your, your signals? What are some of the things that you look for? to know if you're moving far outside of your comfort zone and potentially entering the danger zone.
1: It's funny you say that. So just a reminder, I was president of a Jewish fraternity in college, and I'm a <laughs> practicing Muslim. Uh, in terms of being outside my comfort zone, I think like back in when I was 19, I, I took that one out. The only time I'm out of my comfort zone is really when I don't get enough sleep, and that's probably the most important thing for me that I have to have downtime you know even the world's finest Porsche engine will break down if it does not have a regular oil checkup if you don't change its brakes regularly and you you know don't turn off the engine for a little while because it's gonna overheat if you if you drive it straight at 95 miles an hour for 3,000 miles from DC to LA uh, when you run out of gas anyway
0: yeah but
1: too you know you're gonna do some damage to that engine if you're not if you're not careful and th- that's super important. You must have timeouts. No right. corporate entity, no lucrative um, commodity, no experience in this world um, is worth your life.
0: None.
1: Your life is your own and you have a responsibility to yourself uh, to treat yourself with the dignity you deserve. If you're not getting it in the job you're in, start building an exit plan. It might not be easy. You know, you might be a millennial listening to this right now and going, well, I mean, I'm making the money I want, but they're mistreating me at work, or I have other dreams, but cost of living is so high where I am, and I'm so stuck with my student loans or some other debt. Take a deep breath. No one said that this was going to be an exit plan you execute in three months. This is an exit plan you're going to have to execute over 12, 24 months. And it's right. hard, particularly for millennials, to accept the fragility of our age, right? And the fact okay. that we are aging. Like I found yeah. my first white hair and my beard. <laughs> welcome, and I'm like, welcome, damn, <laughs> I don't even happening. have a girlfriend right now. <laughs> What's going to happen now? Yeah, um, you know, so like, you know, that, that all is going to weigh on you, sure. But take, take a deep breath. You're going to get out of it. And you have to remember that, Life is precious, not just yours, but everyone's life is precious. And don't take your stress out on others. If you're going through right. something, do, do what I did earlier um, in this podcast and just open up and say, hey, these are my personal circumstances. It's not about being vulnerable and losing faith. As, as two brown men, we're very familiar with, with the idea of losing faith. Exactly. Um, the people you lost face to, they were never on your team to begin with. So why do you care? The only person on your team is you and God, for the most part, and and your lovely Ooh. wife, Hamza. Uh,
0: I, <laughs> don't, wow, don't, man, I, I needed to you. hear that. Thank you. This is this is beautiful. And and I want to quickly just add on top of that, as, as we're addressing millennials over here, I mean, everything that Hamza said rings true. And I sometimes feel like a hack when I do public speeches about burnout, stressing the point that people are literally dying for a paycheck to a degree that's hard for me to wrap my head around. I I sometimes have to take extended time away from doing talks about occupational burnout because of the toll it takes on me personally. I mean, I'll just say the stat right now, the the most common uh, uh, way people die in the world, workplace related deaths, uh, to the tune of 2.8 million people a year, according to a conservative estimate from the United Nations. So if you're doing the math, that's over the course of the pandemic, it's more than two times the amount of people that died by COVID died because of heart failure, coronary heart disease caused by working too hard. I mean, people quite literally dying for a paycheck. It's absolutely vexing to me. Whew. Man, oh, man.
1: Wow. Wow. Uh, That that blows my mind away, uh, just to think about that. And, you know, another thing that I find very interesting is that it doesn't have to be this way. There is so much that we can change, even without governmental action, right? Because, you know, one third of Congress is over the age of 70. And that is definitely in the way of progress in many ways, because one third of our country is not over the age of 70, I don't believe. Uh, and then also separately, even if it were, would you want people whose uh, who's, who's age is far well advanced beyond where they can really produce a public policy product that benefits the vast majority of Americans? So that's a, I digress. That's a different direction to go in. But, but thinking about just how many people have lost so much because they're just caught up in trying to pay debts down that they created for themselves because they had a vision of what their life would be and therefore they need that paycheck it really it really brings into focus that we need to have a reevaluation within the US and probably the entire world right about what really matters in life it The dollar. I mean, with inflation as high as it is, and likely will be high for higher for a bit longer, um, the question becomes: Is the dollar the ultimate metric of one's uh, happiness, and is GDP per capita the definition of success for a country at the macro level, and then for us? You know, for us every day.
0: Absolutely! Wow, we're we're we got to collaborate on a book project at some point, man. This is exactly where where my head is at all the time the conversations that I'm having with with leaders all around the world is about what does it mean to to succeed? What what does winning look like at an organizational level? And what I'm seeing is uh, echoing what what Mark Benioff said in 2019 that we need a reinvented system that isn't focused on shareholder value. It's focused on creating value for everyone, positive shared outcomes for people, for communities, for the for animals yep. and the planet. 100%. And um, you you said something earlier about if you're feeling stressed, don't take it out on other people. And I think about this a lot, and I I wonder if the circumstances we find ourselves in right now are echoes of stress that have carried over across time. Um, Are we experiencing the downstream stress caused by the initial fragmentation of India and Pakistan? Are you and I predisposed to stress, or are we acting out in certain ways because of unresolved trauma that predates us? And so this is where I've been spending a lot of my time researching, thinking about what is the furthest upstream problem that needs to be solved. And the furthest I've got, Hamza, is uh, the dichotomy between love and fear. And this comes from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who came up with the five stages of grief model. She said that love and fear are the two primary emotions because you can't feel them at the same time. And so I'm now thinking about how do we get out of fear cycles? And clearly the United States is in a fear cycle. Um, Right. How do we move out of a fear cycle towards a love cycle? As trite as that might sound. And I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about what's going on right now over here. I've got a love for you. I, I, I can sense that there's a love for me as well. Right, man. Yeah. And you know, I've never met your brother and sister, but and I, I can extend empathy, compassion, and frankly, love through you to them. How do we do this? And I want to bring this now back full circle to what you said in your last blog post. You talked about having 10 million breakfasts with people who aren't anything like us. And I have this idea in my head of like, wow, I don't know how I'm going to afford this. I might have to go easy on on the home fries if I'm going to have 10 million breakfasts. I'm going to have to request decaf coffee because it's going to just, I'm going to end up in the ICU. But is this one person's responsibility to have 10 million? Are you planning to have 10 million breakfasts? Or is this more so a call to action for the entire country and the world for that matter, to just simply have breakfast with somebody who isn't anything like them? Please elaborate on this idea of the 10 million breakfasts.
1: You know, it's all of the above. Yes, I, I plan to in the course of my life and as someone who aspires um, to serve the public um, to have 10 million breakfasts uh, hey. with people who are nothing like me. That, that's just that's just there, inshallah. Uh, again, mm-hmm. so inshallah means with the help of God and Arabic folks, it's, you're gonna hear me drop that a lot if I'm ever back on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, sometimes I say it on TV and people go, what did you say? <laughs> Are you talking about Charlotte. <laughs> Charlotte. Um, so, so th- you know. That being said, so like obviously, that's it's that's a personal goal for me, right? That, and I, I think that my life has made that a flex that I can, you know, I can be proud of. Is that I really love having breakfast with people who are nothing like me because you learn very quickly that that's just not true. Everyone has something in common. It's the failure to find that common ground and have conversations that remove the fear aspect again in the way. Yeah, there are people who will come to breakfast with an agenda. They have a preset uh, notion of who you are. They come with their prejudices, whatever they are. And those don't have to be racial prejudices. They can be prejudiced about the shirt you're wearing sure. or, about, or about you know the watch you have or, or maybe right. how the you, you listen to. music you listen to,
0: whatever, yeah. Yeah, you
1: know, anything. There are all kinds of prejudices. So we're not going just a racial angle here. But those folks statistically are almost always watered out to be marginal and insignificant
0: ah. if you have
1: a large enough sample size and 10 million is a huge sample size. Huge. So it's a call for action for me, but it's also one for you. I mean, if, if we got to put together a, a, a task management sheet, a project management spreadsheet right now, or go into monday.com and set up a, a joint account, let's do it. And let's, let's just start ID'ing people to have coffee with who are nothing like us, who are down for the cost and very quickly the multiplier effect kicks in because when you start doing that, you immediately start um, inspiring others to do the same thing. You know, right. over the course of the pandemic, the person who has been, the two, the people who have been the closest and kindest to me are not South Asian, are, are not Muslims. The, two of them don't even belong to my party. They're Republicans. But wow. the amount of time we've spent together as friends of all ages, by the way, we're talking Beautiful. 50s, 60s, 30s, 20s, Um, It's been very impressive to see what comes when you put aside what you think is a difference and you decide to invest in an acquaintanceship and turn that into a proper friendship. Uh, And it's what gave me the drive to be back involved this election cycle. I'm a a campaign manager for a friend's campaign, and I'm a political director at the PAC we talked about earlier. it, it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for those kindnesses because that helps me come out of the burnout. That helped me realize my potential. And more importantly, it, it also helped the folks around me see who I am and what I care about and where I stand for. Um, because you don't always get that from the macro picture when you see someone on wow. TV or when you see them on a piece of literature. It's those one-on-one coffees that make a difference. So it's a call to action for you. It's definitely one for me. It's a call to action to everyone listening. Put together a short list. If you have breakfast every day with someone you don't know for a year, that's 365 or 366 Powerful. people. Very hard to do. Very right. hard to do. If you do it once a week, it's 52.
0: 52.
1: Or if you want to take out for a holiday, let's say you're generous and you have a Canadian or French style pay time off. So six weeks sure. out, right? Yeah. So you take that out and you got 46. You meet 46 new people. The mind can keep track of something around 150 people at a time. Exactly. Forty-six new people in your life who inspire you to do good every single year for the remainder of your life. That's a hell of a lot of people in a decade. That's oh five hundred people, right? And and so essentially five hundred
0: pages of the book that you haven't read before, especially if they're people who are outside of your comfort zone, people who you normally wouldn't connect with. I can only imagine Absolutely. what those two people that you mentioned right now, who have been kind to you, Republicans, you mentioned older. Here you are, a millennial South Asian Muslim democratic strategist, speaking about the kindness and compassion that you receive from two people who, based on that intersectionality I just described, might appear in the minds of some of the listeners who uh, uh, you know, might, might be getting limited news sources. They might, they might have a tough time reconciling that. But you've now changed their perspective hopefully and i I can only imagine that they're having your two friends are having the exact same conversation in some other pocket of the world right now about you and that's powerful and this is how we change the narrative at scale internally but also externally as well wow
1: Yep. when i was in college i think this is a good story to i don't know how much time we have left but this might be a good one to to share when i was in college um i befriended an orthodox rabbi uh ashkenazi so of eastern european descent had only met one other Muslim in his lifetime, and that was in an elevator in Ohio where he grew up, and he didn't spend much time talking to him. This was a few years after 9-11, so he kind of made his distance from this this Muslim gentleman that he saw in the elevator. Uh, the last time this rabbi and I had coffee before he decided to move to Israel, um, he said to me, you know, I'm a Republican. I'm always going to be more conservative than you uh, politically. Uh, but if it hadn't been for our friendship, I would never have thought of Muslims as human beings who are my equals. You really opened the world to me. Mm. You really changed how I wow. treat people oh, who are different from me. And and when he went to the Middle East, he, he made good on those words. He has made a world of difference trying to help uh, Arabs and Muslims uh, within the greater context of Israel and Palestine. All it takes is for us to put aside our preconceived notions and our prejudices. We might very well have a good reason not to like someone or not to like some given tribe or clique they're part of. But if we can control that rage within us, if we can simmer down the seeds a little bit, um, you can make a world of difference and then perhaps turn that rage into something more constructive. So that's That's just a thought I wanted to throw in there. We have to, we can't stop trying to do good. As it says in our faith, even if the world is ending and you have a seed in your hand, you plant that seed in the ground, even when the world is ending.
0: Hamza Khan. Wow. 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 That, that is it. That's, we, we, we gotta, we gotta leave it right there. Thank you, man. This was um, truly, truly inspiring. I know we've been orbiting each other for quite some time but i believe there was a divine alignment that led us to connect finally at this particular junction in our lives hopefully this has been valuable for you i can't tell you how transformative this has been for me and i imagine for all of the listeners would love to have you back but you got to make sure that you watch all five or six episodes of miss marvel before you hop on and maybe even throwing mogul mogli in there but i imagine we're <laughs> going to continue to chat my brother if you're ever in toronto please let me know or new york and I intend to come out and visit you and, and kick it. This has been inshallah. absolutely beautiful. And uh, inshallah, and and I, I want to thank you. Sir, where can people find uh, uh, you and all the things you're up to? Where can people keep up with the adventures of Hamza Khan? So,
1: I mean, just go to my blog that I rarely write on. Hamza Khan dot me. Subscribe. Uh, it's again, H-A-M-Z-A-K-H-A-N dot M is in Mary, E's in England. Hamza me. Subscribe to my my email list, um, and I, I, I plan to start sending out emails regularly, once or twice a month. I have like twenty thousand subscribers, uh, not Ooh. to not to brag, but I just never get around to writing because I'm so damn busy with the work. But I've been I'm under strict orders from a lot of folks that I need to start sharing what's going on. If you're interested in, in the work about uh, criminal justice reform, about electing reformist prosecutors and judges across the country, you can go to Just Reform. Hack.org. Hack is spelled P-A-C, the word just, and then reform, Pac.org. Thank you so much for having me here. This was fantastic, and I hope I can come back.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Hamza Khan, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in for our latest episode of Ideas Into Action. You can check out past episodes and subscribe to get updates on upcoming episodes on IIAPodcast.com. Until our next episode, thank you so much for tuning in. We're out.